Hello and welcome to Beneath the Beerbub, the conservation and communities podcast from JAMA International. I'm Gordon Buchanan and in my 30-year career as a wildlife cameraman, I've seen firsthand how the threat of extinction hangs over our planet's species, habitats and ecosystems. That's why in this series, I'm looking at the actions communities living hand-in-hand with wildlife are taking to challenge or solve conflicts between people and planet. Through these stories, I'm seeking learnings, experiences and ideas from voices not often heard in narratives around wildlife and conservation. Last time we heard more about how the rights of communities and indigenous peoples worldwide can at times lie in direct conflict with global north conservation policies, which in some cases call into question their rights to use the land and resources they've relied upon for generations. Today I'm going to be chatting with Professor Amy Dickman. Amy is the joint CEO of Lion Landscapes, which develops solutions for biodiversity in places where often dangerous wildlife coexists with people. Their mission is to improve the situation for both parties and ultimately create models which can be applied to other human wildlife contexts worldwide. Amy talks to me about her lifetime passion for wildlife, working with rural communities, the complexities of engaging in emotional debates around hunting, as well as the common misconceptions conservationists and wildlife lovers can be caught out by. She is an absolutely dedicated and inspiring advocate for community-driven conservation with a wealth of on-the-ground experience. I hope you find this as eye-opening as I did. Let's talk conservation beneath the beerbub. Amy, thank you so much for for joining me. Where where are you at the moment? I'm just outside of Oxford in Tubney House, which is where Wild Crew is based. So I think we had a similar childhood dream. When I was maybe about 12, 13, I had this kind of inexplicable desire to go to Serengeti to work. It wasn't inexplicable. I watched a documentary about people working with wildlife in the Serengeti and I thought that is where I want to be, the first place I'd ever desperately wanted to visit. No, 100%. I mean, I grew up in Devon and, you know, didn't really have any interaction with big cats or any wildlife beyond like our slightly grumpy, you know, moggy cats and stuff. But I had, just like you, some real passion, particularly sparked by the Serengeti. And in fact, my brother and I buried a sort of a time capsule that I was 10 when I wrote it. And it said what we wanted to be doing at the then unimaginable age of 30. And mine said, when we dug it up years later, mine said, I only had two things on it. So I clearly wasn't very ambitious. I wanted to be studying lions in the Serengeti and I wanted to have a zebra striped Land Rover. So those are my my life goals. <laughs> <laughs> and have you achieved both of those? I actually spent my 30th birthday in the Serengeti. And it made me laugh just thinking back to that kind of 10-year-old self thinking, wow, how crazy. I do have lots of broken down Land Rovers in the field. None of them are zebra striped. So I still, it's on the bucket list to tick that off. That's 50% of your dreams have been realised. I failed. I think I have. <laughs> How do your parents describe what you do? Growing up, everyone thought I was going to be a vet because I loved animals and that was sort of the standard animal career that you were going to take. And so mum was quite pleased with that because, you know, it was a nice, secure, well-paying job. Now I've ended up not only having shattered my childhood dreams at the Land Rover, but having had an insecure, poorly paid job. So (laughs) I think, but beside that slight parental fears, I think they, you know, they, they know what I do. My mother comes out and visits me in the field and sort of, knows it's all about you know the conservation the coexistence and working with local people so she does now really enjoy explaining it to other people 
She'd probably say I'm a big cat conservationist. Yeah, I work with lions, etc. You're CEO of Lion Landscapes and that works across, is it three different countries? Yeah, so I'm the joint CEO with Elaine Cotterill. And so we work now at four different landscapes across three countries, so Kenya, Tanzania and Zambia. This is a collaboration that was born out of you both doing similar kind of work. That's kind of, it's quite rare in the conservation world for different parties to actually get together and collaborate. Well, actually, that was actually what sort of drove this. And it came out of that shared experience and real desperation because both Elaine and I have had long experiences, you know, over 20 years of working in the field on really challenging conservation issues. And we were finding it very frustrating that not only was it very hard to build on other people's success and to to use existing methods that were very good, but not only that, you actually ended up being active competitors with other conservationists because, you know, it's a competitive funding environment. If I have a good idea, which is yet to happen, but if I had one, then I'm not going to share it with anybody else because that's my USP. So we just, we all got frustrated with this. And there were a group of six of us, actually, all women who were working on lion conservation in Africa and we're just getting fed up with this very unsupportive competitive model. And so together we decided to form what we call the Pride Lion Conservation Alliance to have this open sharing network, collaborate, you know, try to help each other and help each other's projects. And it was through that that Elaine and I realised that our individual projects at that point were actually really well aligned. They were at a very similar stage. We wanted to grow them. We wanted to to have very shared sort of goals and vision. And so that was a natural sort of way for us to actually formalise coming together into now form what is now Lion Landscapes across all these landscapes. Yeah, I think for people that aren't involved or have brushes with the conservation world, they would be quite surprised at the amount of competition and conflict and inability to work together. I think that's quite kind of admirable that you can actually combine forces and two great minds together to do great work. <laughs> the project's obviously called Lion Landscapes, but you're not just exclusively focused on lions. No, not at all. As you say, we chose the name Lion Landscapes because we wanted to really focus on it being beyond the individual species, but focusing on the, you know, the whole ecosystem, the whole landscape that supports them. And that, of course, if you have top predators like lions being conserved, then it means that you have the habitat, the wild prey, you have enough social tolerance amongst the local communities. That means that those top carnivores and other dangerous wildlife can coexist with people to some degree. And so you've got this very complicated landscape which is being maintained so that's why we focus on the landscapes that still have apex carnivores in them and we use lions as the main one that we focus on i mean in the future who knows we may end up working beyond africa and looking at other landscapes that have different top carnivores but it certainly is about far more than just lions i've worked in africa a fair amount i've worked with lions on several occasions so i know why your work is needed but for maybe some of the listeners to the podcast would be like i went to see lions in the, in the serengeti in masai mara so what's the problem there's no people there definitely you're, you're absolutely right i think lions are one of those misunderstood species in terms of conservation and it's ironic because they're one of the most well-known and well-loved and iconic species that that we have really. So the thing about lions is exactly as you say, when people go on safari, they tend to see them. When they turn on their TV on a wildlife documentary in an African savannah, they'll see them. And they don't see people in those landscapes. So it seems very isolated and secure. And those two things are not true at all. So people are shocked to learn that in roughly the last 20 years or so, lion populations have nearly halved. That when you think of sort of really threatened species, people tend to think about gorillas or rhinos or elephants, but actually lions are more threatened than any of those, you know, thinking of elephant populations, far more elephants left than lions. And while all of those species need real focus, I think lions have a particular complexity about them. 
There's still a relatively large amount of their range that's outside formally protected areas where they coexist with local people, often uncomfortably. There's sort of a real misconception about the drivers and the threats to lions, the fact that it's about habitat loss and prey loss and conflict with people. So in general, despite our love for this species, we're really a failing, I think, to communicate the magnitude of the threat they face and the real drivers of those threats. And so what are those threats? There's obviously some national parks with there's conflict and issues within those parks, whether it's with poaching and snaring and conflict with people living in the peripheries. But for the, the bulk of your work, what are the main issues that you're dealing with? So species-wide scale, you're looking at things like we talked about, you know, the habitat loss and the loss of wild prey as you touch on, especially things like snaring for bushmeat. You know, often lions are affected either directly or because their prey is lost that way. But the primary threat that we at Lion Landscapes deal with, and we touch on the others to some extent, but the primary one we deal with is conflict with the local people. And that's often very intense along the boundaries by protected areas or obviously where land isn't protected and where lions are using human-dominated land. So they can unsurprisingly pose a real threat to people and their livestock. And the level of retaliatory or preventative killing when people fear lions is much higher, I think, than people realise. You know, we found in our area in southern Tanzania, we found an extraordinarily high rate of lion killing. And that was a complicated mix of cultural killing for sort of for bravery and to prove warriorhood but also bound up with that was keeping the community safe from conflict. How would you describe the communities that you're working with? What do they what do they look like? What do they feel like on the ground? Yeah, so it varies a little bit, obviously, across landscapes. But in general, we are dealing with very, very poor communities. So the majority of the people we work with are living on less than a dollar a day. They are extremely food insecure often. They are heavily reliant upon subsistence agriculture and pastoralism. So they're very, very dependent upon natural resources and livestock in particular. There's all manner of sort of cascading effects of that poverty, you know, lack of access to healthcare, lack of access to education. So people end up in these poverty traps where they don't have the ability to escape that reliance on pastoralism and the subsistence nature. So that's really challenging. And then you've got these people living cheek by jowl with some of the most important and threatened large carnivore populations in the world. And they add on an additional layer of threat. And I think for those people who are already living in such vulnerability, it's really, really difficult when you've got to then send your child to school and there are elephants on the road and there are lions in the bush. And it's just, it's something that none of us, I think, listening to this would put up with. So the tolerance is there for this wildlife and it's amazing, it should be recognised. But I think the complexity and the costs that these animals impose on local people shouldn't be underestimated either. And it is hard for people to imagine. I love that scenario. If you walk your kids to school, when our kids were little, I say, okay, be careful at that junction. And when you don't listen to your headphones, it's not keep your eye on the bush for lions and make sure there's not a herd of elephants in your path. The more I think about it, and through this podcast, there is this huge amount of misconception about what the wild world is and how wild animals live and how communities have to live alongside a whole range of species. And I think the vast majority of wildlife documentaries, we show the wild world devoid of people. So for those communities, obviously there's species that pose a threat to their livelihoods, whether it's lions, leopards taking their livestock, elephants destroying crops. Do people in these communities have an intrinsic value of those animals or they just much prefer that they're a lot further away from them? Well, the answer to both those questions is yes, in that they do have an intrinsic value to these animals. You speak to them, and particularly for the big cats, 
they think they're beautiful and think they're powerful, they're majestic. They want a world where their children, just like us, they want their children's world to have big cats in it. But just like us, again, when you say, where do you want these big cats to be? They say, we want them to be at least 30 kilometers from our house. And interestingly, I think that's what we all want. We all want there to be big, dangerous wildlife somewhere in the world, but we don't want it right in our backyards. And therefore, where do we have it? And where do we secure enough space for this wildlife? And protected areas is one way of doing that. But even protected areas, the communities that we deal with a lot are living, you know, within a few kilometres of the boundary of a massive unfenced national park, say. And so they're living with them within that 30 kilometres. And that needs to be recognised. And there's a lot of issues that come with that. I've been reading about your points-based system with communities. It's such a simple, easy to understand initiative. Can you explain a little bit about what the point-based system is? Yeah. So this is something called community camera trapping. And it came, as most of our ideas do, out of sheer desperation because we were dealing with two things were going on. We had been working with these communities for years trying to co-develop these benefit initiatives. And they were focused on community priorities, which were, in this case, education, healthcare and veterinary medicine. I mean, the things that you would expect and any one of us would value in that environment. And at the same time, we we're trying to do camera trapping studies to look at the ecological makeup, obviously, of the wildlife there. And they were going reasonably well, but not as well as we could want, because the benefits people associated with the project. And so they were very happy with the project. And they would wave at us and smile at us, but they were still killing the wildlife. And why not? Because, you know, you'd take the benefits and you'd still get rid of the wildlife. And there was no direct link. The link was to the project rather than to the wild animals themselves. And I think that's a really common flaw with a lot of coexistence sort of initiatives. And secondly, people were stealing the camera traps because, again, they weren't engaged. They didn't trust the project. It wasn't theirs. And so we brought these two things together and we thought, well, instead of us doing camera trapping, we will get the villagers to place the camera traps on their land and they will get points for every wild animal that they camera trap. And so this is a really long discussion with the villagers, many, many meetings about how many points should be attributed to each wild animal. And we wanted there to be more points for more conflict causing species and for more threatened species. And so I had suggested a really simple sort of one to five point scale and everyone thought I was super cheap and they said they wanted thousands of points per species. So fine. The way this works is that four groups of villagers compete against each other. And then every quarter, the pot of money basically or community benefits gets distributed depending on who got the most points. So it doesn't matter how many points you get. So we have this sort of system where like a small antelope, a dick dick or something gets a thousand points. A lion will get 15,000 points. You know, a pack of wild dogs. You know, we had one sighting of 17 wild dogs that got them 340,000 points. So and it's just, and immediately it transformed it. It transformed it because people were part of that decision-making and programme development. And really there's a lot of discussion, things that I would never have thought of came up. And then when it was working, we would bring back the community camera trap images to the communities and reveal them. And people would just love understanding what was happening to the wildlife. They would then put the cameras in a place where they would get most wildlife. And most importantly, they knew the threats that were facing wildlife. So, for instance, they would come to us and say, well, hang on, we're second in the rankings at the moment and we want to come first. Do you think we should stop that guy snaring or do you think we should reduce that amount of elephant hunting? And we said, you know, you know the threats, you do what you need to do. And so it really empowered the communities to develop it for themselves. And it's been really transformative in multiple ways. And I suppose traditionally, these are communities that where they have not been engaged in conservation. They've not been empowered or actually even their opinions and views sought over the matter forever. Definitely. And I think the other key, yes, the empowerment, the engagement is central, but also 
the way this works is that every three months, then the four villages compete, as you say, and they will split sort of $5,000 worth of community benefits and they will split it according to their priorities and stuff. So the winning village in that quarter will get, say, $2,000 worth of benefits. And even that seems like a small amount. And then the next one will get 1500 the next 1000 the next 500 so They all get something. They spend it on community sort of initiatives. But it has become now a real driver of local community development. It's very clear that if you then you know, protect the wildlife, you get more points and you end up getting more benefits. And we did because we engaged the women, because a lot of the women wanted to focus on maternal health and neonatal health. We found that there was an incident where the young men were going out on an elephant hunt and the women stood up and called those young men back and they said, you are killing the very thing that is enabling us to give birth safely and educate our children. We're not having it. And they put a ban on a lion and elephant hunts in that village. And we could never have done that. And it was so empowering to see it come from them because that's what we need. That's what we need for, you know, for long-term conservation. That's very powerful. Thank you, Amy. We'll come back to you in just a moment. Next, I want to hear more about how their community-driven conservation initiatives are happening on the ground. Darwin Kanaga Kenya is the Community Enterprise Officer at Line Landscapes. Darwin joins me now. What makes Kenya a unique place to work in conservation? I think it's because of its cultural diversity, that is one. Yeah, we have a mix of so many tribes, more than 42. All these cultures have had a history with conservation. There are communities that turned to agriculture, there are others that stuck to livestock keeping. And again, the biodiversity we have, we are lucky to have a lot of animals and a lot of species, different species within Kenya. So that makes it unique from most of our places. I've spent the last 30 years making wildlife documentaries all around the world, in South America and North America, across Africa, Indonesia. And Kenya is one of the most incredible places that I've spent time and I've been fortunate enough to visit many, many times in the past. So I appreciate how special and how unique it is. What's your role within the project? It blends in with Lion Landscape's goal, which is helping communities live alongside lions. And by lions, not only lions, but large carnivals. We have to help these communities get to a point that they're able to live alongside these animals. So my role basically is to come up with business concepts. Well, I'm a big love of creating businesses. I have a big passion for conservation. So having the two, it's more of helping these communities get another source of livelihood and create value in wildlife for them. And that can only be made through sustainable business models that can work for those particular communities. What sort of economic incentives have you seen while working in conservation? I suppose because you cannot have productive conservation without involving communities. But as you said, there has to be that incentive. What's working well at the moment that you've seen? If, with your permission, let me talk of what works well and what doesn't. A lot of the incentives we talk about, majorly donor funding, have been a problem to these communities because what you find is that projects come and go. Projects have a timeline. So when these timelines are met, the deadlines are met, and it's time to leave, the communities trickle back to the same systems they were still in. And incentives, the kind of incentives I think work are those that are generated or rather created around uh, business models. A good example that I personally have seen implemented is within like Kipia. It's still uh, within our area of operation. 
that is in uh, Borana Conservancy. It's something similar to the proposals we've done towards what we want to create, but in a much smaller scale. The reason why they are working is that they are more community-driven. Everyone is bringing on the table and not everything being brought to the table and everyone else is just there to pick what is on the table. But it's more of uh, I bring this, uh, the other person brings this, and we strike a good balance on all the stakeholders. Yeah. What we do, we use more of uh, predator-proof bombers to help these communities. So instead of giving them out for free, you'd rather now have a system whereby you loan people or rather they have something they are putting on the table. Unlike where you come and give everything for free, sustainability is not guaranteed. Today, you'll give one, but you'll not be able to give everyone. The other neighbor, how do you expect to also help them as well? But where you have a model whereby you have these materials close to where they are, they're able to purchase. That's the kind of incentive I see for these particular communities. And for you yourself, did you... Do you grow up in town or are you in a rural area? I'm just interested in how you came to work in conservation and how you reached your current role. I have been raised in a setup in Kirinyaga. It's more agricultural, but I had an uncle around Laikipia that I used to visit a lot. That's how I fell in love with conservation. At a place called Oljogi Conservancy. At a very young age, when we went visiting there and also Olpejeta, I started admiring the work and ever since I knew this is a place I wanted to be. When I went to boarding school, I helped create wildlife clubs, went to high school, similar thing. Uh, Again, in campus, I went ahead and did the same thing with the wildlife clubs. But now in campus, that's where I really now got exposure because from my first year, I started volunteering at Kenya Wildlife Service. I would take part in the bird counts, also take part in the mammal counts. Then I also did some agriculture. That's where I think my business interest came in. I started slowly by just looking at things, policies. Some of the things I'm actually doing right now come from way back. During my time in volunteering, that's how I got again to go to my attachment. At my industrial attachment, that's where I met Lion Landscape. From there, I knew, hey, is where I wanted to be. And slowly I started realizing there are no marketing cooperatives. And where I come from, I come from a tea growing area, coffee growing area. These have helped so many farmers because they are able to sell their produce as a cooperative. And those are some of the things I started borrowing now to this particular site. Then the other thing was, how do I get these people from livestock perhaps alternative business ventures. And I realized there is no access to credit. So I started writing proposals and also I realized there had no insurance. But again, the insurance policies that can only work in those areas are insurance policies that are attached to a ranching system. So I started writing all these proposals. Then I made a presentation to the Lion Landscape team since, again, they were the ones that had facilitated my being there at Loisaba. After that, they were keen on uh, having me on a project they were working on that is a lion-friendly livestock. So ever since 2021, I joined them officially in April on a three-month contract. It has been a journey because doing research on the markets, the livestock markets in the country, trying to understand how it works, now trying out concepts, now laying down now the suggestions and the different ideas that we had come about. So yeah, the rest is history. And that's how I'm here. Is there... One example 
that you think from your learnings that you could roll out in other parts of the world, in other regions? Just one thing you think, this is what works. This is what works for communities. This is what works for, for wildlife. The first thing you need to understand these communities. One, what's their history? What are they attached to? What do they gain from that particular environment? Then you work your way towards that because what works for Kenya might not work for Brazil. But the steps to get you to that point whereby you're able to clearly identify what works for, for this particular region is through understanding that particular community. Understand their structures of governance because at some point you'll have to use them. Number two, understand what can they easily get. Now, for example, I never grew up knowing about gold. Most countries back their currencies on gold. So in an African setup and understanding such a culture as the Samburu, Maasai, is that um, I categorize livestock as food. But there's a reason why they are called livestock. These are stocks that can appreciate over time. And it makes much more sense, especially to also someone like me, because if I would have to keep livestock, if I have to save my money, let me save it in livestock. At the end of the day, in six months, it's appreciated because the animals are growing. I'll have backed my money. I do not have paper or rather saved money in a bank that if today our currency collapsed, I will just have pieces of paper. So it's a model that you really need to interact with that particular community, try and understand how and why they're inclined towards that particular concept. And then from there, start building up on that. Try to modernize it because currently that's what I'm also looking forward to because if you'd have people buying livestock on phone, you have a, a sustainable model that is well aware that uh, there are other wildlife species around, there are other things within the environment that also need to survive such kind of a setup. So it's more of understanding the, the communities there than building up on what they already have because now that one makes them feel more in control, which is mostly what is human nature to have such feelings that you're included in something. Otherwise, you might not be very much interested. No, I think to achieve harmony, whether it's sort of from one person to another, whether it's sort of with a community or, or globally, it has to start with understanding. Darwin, thank you so much for your unique perspective on conservation in Kenya. Thank you. I appreciate Thank you for having me here. Let's continue the conversation with Amy. I'm sure there's been a whole set of challenges over the last couple of years with the global pandemic. But aside from that, can you recollect a day when you kind of maybe poured yourself a glass of wine and thought this was a good day when it comes to work? Definitely. Well, I've long wished for wine at camp. We don't even have a fridge, so that's always sad. At the beginning of the project, I mean, people had said to us, you know, I knew there was lion killing in this area because of my master's and my PhD. But when we started in southern Tanzania, we knew there was lots of lion killing, but the group that were meant to be responsible just would not engage with us. And they don't engage. Everyone said it's the Barabaig tribe, the sister tribe to the Maasai, who are doing most of the lion killing. But they won't talk to anyone, let alone conservationists. And I thought, oh, come on, it's, you know, you've just got to try a bit harder. So we went and we set up our tiny tented camp on village land right by the Barabaig. And sure enough, no one spoke to us for like two years. And we tried everything in the book. We would try to have meetings, we tried to do everything. 
nothing worked. And eventually I thought, well, maybe we can't engage with these people. And there was huge amounts of lion killing going on at the same time. And eventually we put up a solar panel at camp to charge our laptops. And then the Barabay came to charge their mobile phones. And it just made me laugh. And I still, I, I still kick myself for not realising that, of course, everyone wants the same thing. And a charging station for your phone is really useful. So that enabled us to, to discuss with them and start having a relationship as they would come to camp and hang around and charge their phones. And eventually we managed to have a community meeting with them. And we said, look, we are passionate about lion conservation, yes, and wildlife, but ultimately all we're trying to do is understand why you kill this many lions and whether there's a way that you could do it, replicate whatever benefits you're getting in a different way. And we said, you know, we're not the police, we're not wildlife division, we're not here to cause any issues for you, we want you to be our partners. As we walked away from that feeling pretty happy, and it was great to have this first breakthrough with the Barabay. And then within about four days, those same group of warriors that we talked to went away and killed seven lions right around camp. And we found the carcasses and oh, it was it was the worst day for the project. It just felt so disheartening. It felt like they were throwing it all back in our faces. And I called up a friend of mine, Leela, who runs Lion Guardians in Kenya and said to her, we just can't. We can't work with these people. I've tried everything. I'm literally at the end of my tether. And she said, this is a test. She said, you've, you've told them that you value your relationship with them. They know you value lions. So they're now putting those two things, you know, right up, say, which do you value more? Your relationship with the community or the deadlines? And so she said, you've got to do nothing. And sure enough, we did nothing. You know, they knew we knew about the lions and we measured them and we filled in the reports, but, you know, nothing happened. And then about a week after that, they called us down to their tribal meeting in the bush. And it was the first time they'd ever had outsiders at the meetings. And they said, now we can work with you and now we will we'll talk to you about the real issues are and and hopefully work together for sort of making things better. And, and since then, it's really gone from strength to strength. So that first meeting was really amazing. Uh, hopefully you had an imaginary glass of wine, even if you don't have any wine at the camp. <laughs> <laughs> I've spent time close to Maasai communities and I know their traditional relationship with lions. But can you explain what those cultural lion killings are about? Definitely. So I think this is another misconception. When people think about cultural lion killings, they always think of the Maasai and they think it's something that is very limited and happens with an age set, you know, becoming a warrior. And that is true to a small extent. But actually, there's an awful lot of tribal lion killing that goes on it's in remote bushland that tends to be fairly undocumented, where it's much, much more extensive. So this is young men being traditional warriors. And this to be a warrior means to obviously defend your community, to be a reliable person, someone that you go to in times of trouble. And so lions being around is obviously a threat. And so these young men will go and will hunt lions. And it's for two purposes, really. They are obviously limiting the threat that exists to the community. But very importantly, for these groups, they will go out and the first guy who throws the spear that hits the lion, even if that person isn't the one who kills it, gets to cut off the right front paw of the lion and take a claw as a sort of a proof of kill. And then he goes around the whole community and he celebrates and they celebrate with him that he's so brave and important and he gets gifts of cattle for wealth and he also gets attention from women. So it's the same thing that drives human behaviour the world over, you know, money and sex. And it's no different there, really. And so understanding those dynamics is really, really important for then sort of addressing that killing. And while people tend to think that ritualistic killing like that is sort of just quaint and not very damaging. The amount of killing that was happening there was hugely high, the highest recorded rate of lion killing in East Africa that, that we know of, certainly. And it's, you know, you compare it to things like all the focus on trophy hunting that happens in the media, it was at least 50 times higher sort of per square kilometre than you would have had in a trophy hunting area. So 
this kind of threat is much, much higher and doesn't get very much attention at all and needs much more focus. The mention of trophy hunting, I think almost every circle in day-to-day life living where I do, people have asked me, what, what, what are my views on trophy hunting? And I think there's this expectancy that I'm going to say, it's abhorrent, it should be wiped out. And people just don't understand the benefits that trophy hunting can bring. You've had a hate campaign online. You've tried to be publicly shamed for your viewpoint. Can you tell me a bit about that? (laughs) Yes, definitely. Well, it was one of those things that as I was moving between the field and seeing all these massive threats that lions were facing, and then we'd spend a bit more time in the US and the UK. And the only thing that people seemed to focus on was trophy hunting. And there was a real disconnect between the real threats, things like habitat loss and conflict, and then the singular focus on an activity which we might find, you know, repugnant to whatever, you know, I'm a vegetarian, I'm an animal lover, I would never go on a hunt. It's just, but equally, I recognise that more lion ranges protected by trophy hunting areas than by national parks. So until we have something better to make sure that that habitat and those lions and other wildlife are secured, it's crazy to take it away. And so that seemed very obvious to me that there was this disconnect being fueled by the media and by various misinformation sort of campaign. So I spoke out about it. I wrote a letter in Science with over 130 other colleagues just saying, and community representative scientists saying, hang on, you know, it's just more complicated than it's being presented. And I just, I didn't think much of it. And then it <laughs> generated some crazy amount of hatred and vitriol and, you know, sort of attacks on me. And, and I think that's, that's fine. You know, you know, you have to be willing to put your head above the parapet and say that, you know, I'm I'm going to be led by the evidence. And even if I don't personally like something, I, I still am going to be led by the evidence on it. And so I think it's an important thing to keep discussing and not only the need to incentivize governments like, you know, someone like Tanzania to put aside such huge areas of their land for conservation. And we need all the revenue streams that we can to make that happen, but also to recognize the rights of those local communities to sustainably use their wildlife. And in in many places, that is embedded as a, a you know a right that we need to recognise there, just as we would recognise it here in the US or the UK. So, I think it's an important conversation to have. The majority of people living in the global north are not vegetarians. They're not vegans. They're perfectly happy to wear leather. They're perfectly happy to consume meat. And yeah, I think there's just something about the killing of wild animals. I would have absolutely no desire to go and kill a lion or kill a giraffe. But can you just sort of explain some of the benefits that there are to trophy hunting? So one of the major benefits, and this is all well documented by the science, is the protection of habitat. And habitat loss is the major driver of biodiversity loss globally, so that should never be underestimated. And there is more land protected in Africa, for example, under trophy hunting areas than in national parks. Now, it doesn't mean it's being done perfectly. There's still snaring, you know, in all of those different land uses, there's all kinds of underfunding, but it is providing just the same kind of benefit as photo tourism. In addition, of course, people say, well, why not just do photo tourism? You know, why not shoot with a camera rather than the gun, etc. And that's complicated because photo tourism in itself could never sort of maintain all the land that is maintained for trophy hunting because it's not as attractive, it's not as open, you don't have the density of wildlife, you have, you know, often thick tetsy flies. So actually, because hunters individually pay a lot more per hunter, You don't have to have that high density of hunters to make that land use economically viable. And the other key thing that people think about often when you talk about there that most people aren't vegetarian, people say, well, I get it if you eat the meat or, you know, I'm fine killing an animal to eat the meat, but not for fun. And I think a real misconception about it 
is that this is just for fun. And yes, for the hunter, this is all part of the big experience of being out in the bush and going on that hunt. But for the local communities, they get revenue from that trophy hunting. And critically, they get meat as well. And meat is really highly prized in these places, you know, many of which are still very food insecure. And the government critically gets funds from those hunters, just like from other forms of tourism, which incentivize them to put aside large tracts of land for wildlife. And if we don't have those multiple layers of incentives to the government, to the local communities, we are not going to incentivize the maintenance of wild spaces and wild animals. My eyes were really opened. I went to Botswana a number of years ago and I was speaking to the people that ran a lodge there and they were explaining how with trophy hunting restrictions in Botswana, the wildlife had been decimated because the presence and the revenue that was brought into local communities, that was incentive for local communities to protect those animals and of removing hunting from those areas just was open season for poaching and there was no presence there to actually monitor the wildlife in that area. I think it's a really important discussion to have and I think it would be great if people were better informed or were prepared to look a little bit deeper into it rather than just taking that sort of tagline sort of tabloid view. I suppose we just explain what sort of trophy hunting is for anyone that doesn't understand that concept. Trophy hunting is Definitely. And even that, even thinking about what trophy hunting actually is, is something that's often confused. It gets confused with poaching, it gets confused with the illegal wildlife trade. Trophy hunting is the legal regulated hunting of wild animals, specifically looking for wild animals that have a particular characteristic, such as antlers that the hunter might want to keep. And it does overlap extensively with hunting for meat. So I think important to recognise all those elements. You know, we're not talking about canned hunting, which is again, poorly defined, but of captive bred animals in small fenced enclosures. We're talking about vast wild landscapes and wild animals. And while the trophy hunter will keep part of the animals the trophy, the local community does get the meat, the government gets the revenue, the local community will get some of the revenue. So there are these multiple benefit streams that will come from it. Let's chat a little bit about your relationship with Ruaha. Can you describe it for me and why is it so special to you? Well, my relationship with Raha, it's funny because I was like you, I had that passion for the Serengeti. And when I first went to East Africa, I had met Sarah Durant from the Serengeti Cheetah Project. And we went out to visit the Serengeti. It was as spectacular as I thought it was ever going to be. And spent this magical few days there. And Sarah said, well, do you want to do your PhD with me? And I said, absolutely. So I signed up. And then she said, right, just, just drive about 20 hours south until you hit a swamp. And I was like, what? Why can't I stay in the Serengeti? And she said, well, We've got way too many people in the Serengeti. We need people in Ruaha. I'd never heard of it. So to be fair, I didn't really pick it for any particularly learned reason. And so I rather grumpily drove off south. It took two days. It was horrendous. I was in the oldest land rover known to man. Had to get rescued by nuns. Anyway, ended up in Ruaha by the edge of this river in a tiny tent and felt a bit daunted by it because up until then I'd worked in Namibia on cheetahs and and just was like, I'd talked for so many years that I wanted to be out in the really wild bush studying lions. And once I was there with my tiny little rucksack and tiny little tent, I, I wasn't quite sure about it all. And then I got into the tent and night fell. And that very first night, a huge male lion came and prowled around the tent and sniffed the tent and then lay on the tent with me in it. And it was the most deeply terrifying moments of my life. And yet there was something just amazing about thinking, God, this is where you need to be to study animals like this and realise just you know, the craziness of people living right alongside them. And so it's a spectacular area. It is a huge, vast national park. It's beautiful. It's wildly undervisited. You know, it has beautiful lodges and things. So 
and it has incredible densities of lions and wild dogs and it has cheetahs and everything. So it's just, it's just a fantastic place. You're describing it in that way. I, I don't tend to get itchy feet when I'm at home, but that description just makes me think that's, that's where I'd quite like to be. Mm-hmm, <laughs> so as your kind of work has progressed working with the Barabeg, has there been ongoing points of resistance or is it all rosy and that relationship's working really well? No, I think very few relationships are all rosy, you know, in any of our lives that are always ups and downs. And I think the way that we've always taken with local stakeholders, including the Barabeg, is that we are not there. We don't know how to coexist with these animals. You know, I, I grew up in Devon, you know, and so we need to listen to them. We need to put them at the heart of the conservation solutions that we co-develop with them. And for things like the Warriors, that was about enabling them to get that wealth, that status, that warrior-ness in a different way. And when we had lots of discussions about what else could deliver that, we said, well, look, we can employ you as, you know, lion defenders, we call them, where they track lions, they warn the community of lions are around, they help find lost livestock, lost children, they prevent against attack. We can do that, and it's partly successful. We said to them, what on earth would replace the status of lion killing? Because it truly does take a lot of bravery to go out and kill a lion with a spear. And they said the one thing that would replace it is learning how to read and write, because no one can do that. There was one guy in the village that could do it a lot. And I would never have thought that was remotely equivalent. But now they've all learned to read or write. They have passports. They travel up to Kenya. They they are now the guys. And it was fascinating because these women came up to camp and talked to us. And they said, we used to want our daughters to marry lion killers. They said, but now we want them to marry lion defenders because these are the men that are going somewhere. And these are the men that are going to get the money and the job. So I think putting those communities at the heart of it has been central and remains our absolutely central tenet in all of our landscapes that we work in. But it's never entirely rosy. And, and the pressures on everyone come and go. So not long ago, we had an incident where the Barabay Queen arrived on the scene. And this has happened a couple of times. And usually it reflects just a lack of engagement and that they're feeling not as recognised. And so it involves quite a lot of discussion, obviously, with the community. So we sat down again and talked. And one of the times the Queen emerged was when they said that they felt all of their sort of what it meant to be Barabay was disappearing. You know, their language isn't really written down. You can't go and learn about Barabay. There's, there's like one book about the Barabay. There's nothing. And so they were feeling quite erased. And so we sat with them again and said, well, what could make a difference? And we came up with the idea of a book about the Barabag and in the scenario. So we wrote a children's book with them. And it sounds so silly. It sounds like nothing. But they sat with us and they helped us talk about how the Barabag would interact and put the clothing and the types of spears. And for them to see this book back in the communities, it just, it really changed it. A, because we'd listened, I think, and done something with them. And B, because they saw themselves. This is their story. And when you talk about things like conservation filmmaking, which is great, who doesn't love wildlife filmmaking? But when we've shown that as part of our education, it's notable that almost all of them are in English. And so when we show those in the villages, that people love them, they're spectacular imagery, but because they're in a different language, even if someone's translating along the way, the narrative is, this is not for you. This is not your story. And that's such a divisive thing. These are the people that will decide if lions persist or not. You know, if we're going to have these big, amazing wildlife populations. So... I think making sure that they are always at the heart of it and then recognising when things aren't going right and being willing to really talk through it and say, there'll be some things we can't do and we can't change, there'll be other things we can, but being willing always to engage with partners fully is just central and there will always be ups and downs in that. Simple is always best and the points-based system is simple. But as you said, producing a book, you can understand how important that is because it makes those communities and those people feel valued and and feel some kind of worth. And I think that's sort of the key to any collaboration or any project is about 
empowerment. It's about involving those people and those communities in decisions that are being made that concern them. Given the threats that our planet faces, given the threats that lions in Africa face, what are your hopes for the future? What kind of world would you like to see us living in when it comes to lions in, in sort of 20 years from now? Well, it's funny because not long ago, my daughter turned to me and she's seven and she said, I want to be, do what you do when I grow up, mummy. She said, I want to save lions. And there was a sort of fleeting moment of pride. And then there was a really quite a crushing sense of, I don't know, just fear, I think, of that, will there be lions? So I say, will she turn around and say, none of you did enough? You know, are you going to end up in this very sort of depleted world? And it, it literally keeps me awake every day. I would say about just what world we're leaving for our children. But I think there is a reason for hope. You know, we're seeing these discussions becoming much more central. You know, obviously, the climate discussions and the need to have much more of a zero carbon future has risen up the political agenda. We still need it to be far, far higher and be matched with political will and funding. And I think the biodiversity crisis is starting to emerge as that, because to some extent it's sometimes been sort of subsumed or or hidden behind the climate crisis. And I think we have to recognise the significance of the biodiversity crisis as well. But we are seeing people recognise that the public wants this. You know, we all want and we need to live in a world where nature is thriving, because then it's only then that even people can thrive. Even if your only care is about people, then we need nature. And I think you see things like the Discupter reviews and these sort of discussions about financing and novel ways of thinking about how to finance and truly recognise the value of nature and how to translate that global value of nature down to the local level, whether it's through things like the rhino bonds that have emerged recently. We have something called lion carbon, which is a premium carbon offset that is in sort of areas with lions. There's all sorts of novel mechanisms. And I think it's the start of something. It needs to be sped up. It needs to be much more central and have a lot more political will and focus and funding. But I think we can turn the tide to have that better future. I feel that the tide is turning. We live in a changing world and it's changing not just for communities in Africa, but it's changing for the global community. And I I see that people are much better informed than they were even just a couple of years ago. And and I feel that does give me a huge amount of hope because things are moving in the right direction. Maybe not as fast as we all would like, but it is really uplifting to hear about your work and the progress that you've made it is really vital so yeah thank you and keep up the great work thank you very much thanks a lot gordon it's been fascinating to dive into the complicated and emotional topics of hunting and how that connects to sustainability and the creation of value for wildlife whilst it's not an easy conversation to have I admire Amy's determination to change attitudes in this space and bring the experiences of people and communities to a global stage. I also loved hearing how she managed to win the trust of the Barabeg and develop such a powerful relationship after years of effort. This is really incredible. If you'd like to find out more about Lion Landscapes, you can find links in the show notes or just visit the website jamainternational.com to explore more amazing international projects. If you'd like to listen to our next episode, make sure you follow or subscribe to this podcast on your favourite app. JAMA International are passionate about conservation and well-being for people and planet and know it's crucial to open positive dialogues and share ideas. If you'd like to share this podcast, please do so with the hashtag beneath the beobub on social media. Baobab is spelled B-A-O-B-A-B. 
or maybe just start a conversation with a friend. I'm Gordon Buchanan and I hope you'll join me next time Beneath the Baobab. <laughs>